Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I got something I want to talk about to you. Hello, this is Communication Mixdown. I'm John Langer. We constantly hear reports about the crisis in journalism, stories about the decline and fall of traditional media in the digital age, and one particular area of journalism that has a lot of people wringing their hands about is what's frequently referred to as investigative reporting. The story is that it's on its last legs, gasping for breath and funding, as readers and viewers migrate en masse to online and digital platforms. Andrea Carson is a former journalist and now works in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University, and she has a very different story to tell based on her extensive study of investigative journalism practices around the world. Her research has just been published by Routledge. The book's entitled Investigative Journalism, Democracy and the Digital Age, and I spoke by telephone to Andrea Carson last week about her research findings. Andrea, we're talking about journalism, so let's start with the bad news. Journalism has been going through and is still going through some major shifts and challenges. Just to give some context to your research and your our discussion today, uh, I'd like to do a bit of a short scene-setting survey of those challenges. Maybe we can begin with the economic environment. What's been happening there? Yeah, sure. It's been a really disruptive time for journalism writ large. And my work tends to focus more on investigative journalism, which I think is a distinct form of journalism. And we can come to that in a moment. And I think the challenges for investigative journalism are quite different to everyday reporting. In the everyday sphere, newsrooms have suffered some major cutbacks in Australia in particular, um, following on from the European traditions and other developed economies such as the United States uh, and parts of Europe where over the last 10 years as audiences and as advertising has migrated online to big digital competitors including Facebook and Google, it has affected the advertising revenues, the traditional business model of newspapers in particular, and they've responded to that, to these austerity measures through cost-cutting and the types of journalism jobs that have gone. is what we call accountability reporting, the rounds reporting, the number of journalists that were covering industrial relations or covering the courts or covering local government there's fewer of those people that are specialising. There's still general reporters that will cover those things, but they don't get the opportunity to develop the in-depth contacts and the time on those rounds like they once had, which could be up to two or three years. And the other thing that uh, I guess is a bit, well, I'm not guessing, but it is a, is a problem is the political and legal pressures that are being put on reporters and particularly 
the Australian federal police raids that have just happened, that, that is also an inhibiting factor. Yes, since, since, since 9-11, uh, the shift in the uh, international national security environment has changed and that's had great implications for journalism with changes to security laws, greater surveillance of citizens and monitors like Freedom House have been watching what's been happening to journalism during that time and there's others that measure press freedom as well and found that it's consistently going down not just in liberal sta- in illiberal states non um, democracies, but also in liberal states, and Australia is not immune from that. I think there's um, been documented to be over 70 laws that govern, in some way, our press freedom, our media freedoms, and the example of that was, as you said, we're seeing um, raids on Australian journalists from the ABC and also from the News Corp papers, Annika Smethurst. Uh, for publishing stories that I think by most tests are very much in the public interest and yet the response via the AFP has been to, uh, to, to apply pressure. Now that's damaging for a number of reasons. It applies a chill effect to journalists, makes them second guess themselves. Should they publish this story? Do they want to go through the consequences? And that's where we see this hampering of media freedom that we should as citizens stand up against. I guess we can't be talking about these things without without talking about the fake news and how that's been playing out as well. Yes, well, I should also say Australia has defamation and libel laws that are also quite um, tough, and that also has a chill effect on journalists. But fake news is a, another component to this. As we've had um, decreased media freedom, we've also had a fall in public trust in the media over time, and we've had public trust in all our major institutions falling, whether it be business, whether it be politics or media, and this has been measured by various barometers such as the Alderman Barometer and the Pew Research Centre and our University of Canberra also does a study with Oxford University, which is showing that trust in media is um, falling or at least not at very high levels. And part of that also is the environment where the democratising ideal that we had for the internet has a very dark side, and that is that misinformation and disinformation can spread rapidly and it can confuse people about what's real and what's not real. Um, a Pew Research Centre study at the end of last year found that 88% of Americans were confused about basic facts, about what to believe and not to believe. And Australia is not immune from this environment as well. We saw in the last federal election campaigns some misinformation that was spreading quite... Well, disinformation, I should say, where it's deliberate rather than just sloppy journalism. Uh, disinformation around the death tax, which has outraged Labor and Labor supporters. And we saw... We've, Always had examples of this, but what's changed is that it is it can spread beyond local geographies. It can spread globally and it can spread rapidly. And once the egg's scrambled, it's very hard to unscramble it and sort and to be able to add corrections. Now, that's a pretty bleak sort of picture you've painted, but uh, I want to turn to what I'm going to call the good news. You undertook a very extensive and longitudinal study of journalism in various liberal democracies around the globe including Australia, the UK, and the USA. And you were particularly focusing on, as you said earlier, investigative reporting. Why did you focus particularly on this kind of journalism? Yeah, that's a really good question. 
my background is as a journalist, but also uh, as a political scientist. And so I'm really interested in what the relationship is between media and between politics and between democracy. And one of the functions of the media as the fourth estate is to hold power to account. And that usually is the role that we see investigative journalists in particular performing. Now, it's not just investigative journalists that do that, but in uh, it's something that they especially do. And I wanted to know, as we've just described, as there's been digital disruption to news media business models, I approached this task back in 2010 to look at whether, as there's been cost-cutting in newsrooms, does that mean that accountability... Uh, holding power to account function through investigative journalism has suffered. And before I started the project, I had the view that if the business model is broken and we've got fewer journalists, then it's logical to think we've got less investigative reporting. And there were many academics and commentators that were saying that um, in the first decade of the millennium, and I had that view too. In fact, what I found after initially looking at six decades of Australian reporting and then branching out, as you said, to look at other developed economies, investigative journalism uh, has been is in good shape. It's mm. been getting uh, in Australia. There's been more with each decade, and I've also found that the quality of it has been. There's been some exemplar. Um, stories that have been written in recent years. And there's a few reasons for this. I was One just going to, sorry, it, and yeah, it was, I was going to ask you about this. And just uh, so you basically what you're saying is that in st- uh, the commentary in the public discourse is saying it's pretty much investigative journalism through the disruption is kind of taking a bit of a nosedive. In fact, you found the opposite. They're, they're adapting, uh, uh, investigative journalism is adapting and it's even thriving. And uh, one of the ways you talk about this is, is, is a kind of new model of newsroom coordination and collaboration. What's been happening here? That's right. So while it's true that newsrooms have suffered financial duress, there's been a recognition that investigative journalism is important for newsrooms for different reasons. The motivations can be quite varied. One motivation is purely a political economy one. To It's good for brand to be able to say that you're doing investigative journalism, unique form of reporting. And the other motivation is a, a, a strong belief in performing the fourth estate function, that it's important to have that accountability role. And we can both, we can all think of different media outlets that might fall into one category or another, that they're doing investigative journalism for the financial branding benefits or they're doing investigative journalism for the ideological democratic benefits. Whatever the case, whatever the motivation, it means that investigative journalism compared to other forms of journalism has been cordoned off from some of the cost cutting because it's advantageous for media organisations to do it. But they also have suffered cost-cutting. So in order to preserve investigative journalism, there's been adaptations that have occurred in newsrooms. And one of those has been moving towards a model of collaboration, moving from the old model of uh, journalists being a lone wolf, uh, going for the great scoop, which probably characterised the 20th century model, to now working with other journalists, not only within their organisations, such as The Age teaming up the Sitting Morning Herald, which is how this collaboration started, but then moving to what may have been considered previously as rivals. Sorry, yeah, I was just going to say, you uh, mentioned the Crown Casino as an issue, and that's a very strong example of, of how that collaboration takes place. That, that's a, a really recent example of a story that shines the spotlight 
on the practices occurring at Crown that fall short of regulatory standards, it would appear, where uh, the high rollers are being fast-tracked with visas uh, and all sorts of uh, other practices have been occurring. And as you point out, that's through collaboration within the Nine Network between age journalists, Sydney Morning Herald journalists, and then having that extra amplification of the story by giving it the visual element on 60 Minutes on television. And over the last five years in particular, we've seen a lot of these cross-media and intermedia collaborations where a television story and a newspaper outlet will come together, which increases the reach of a story. It means that authorities and our political decision-makers can't afford to ignore these stories because they... uh, not just occurring in one newspaper, they're, they get mm. national coverage. And that's been the benefit of the collaboration, but it's also scaled up to an international level where we're seeing some really massive transnational collaborations, and the largest to date is probably the Panama Papers. Yes, speak about that if you can. Yeah, by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, and an amazing effort headed up by an Australian, a former colleague of mine, Jared Ryle, who I worked with at The Age, he runs this organisation which brought together nearly 400 journalists back in 2015. They released the story in 2016 where they had mass data leaks from a law firm in Panama which was able to show how elites around the world and the powerful avoid tax and use um, tax havens, offshore tax havens. And with this mass data leak... They, the, the beauty of it is they are able to employ local, have local journalists on their team who mm. can understand what the big names are in their local setting, but they tell this global story of economic inequality, of where the tax are able to use uh, this law firm to do things that most of us can't do, and mm. that is to minimise their contributions. And this has had really big consequences, this story. Not only did they work on it for a year in silence, really showing the collaborative model works, that journalists can keep a secret when they need to, but it's cost the prime ministership of, of Iceland, it's cost the Pakistani prime ministership. $1.2 billion has been recouped in lost taxes by countries that have been affected. Uh, others have been uh, had non-custodial sentences for corruption. It's affected sports stars. It's been a very far-reaching mm. investigation, and it shows the strength of investigative journalism on a global scale, where power can be challenged in ways that it wasn't challenged in the past. That's Andrea Car- Carson, and she's an associate professor of journalism at La Trobe University, and she's talking about some of the findings from her new book, Investigative Journalism democracy and the digital age. You're with Communication Mixdown. More after this. Okay, so this is Shebop. And so is this. And this. Shebop, a program that explores feminist issues. Beginning September 2nd, tune in Mondays, 10.30am, for a show where only women get to speak, but everyone can listen. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show, 
or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. This is a bit of a naive question, I suppose, from somebody who's not a journalist, but to do something like the Panama Papers and have all those people being coordinated together, would they have been getting permission from their editors themselves, or are they doing this as, as, as independents? It's a good question. Most of them have the cooperation with their home newsrooms, where an investigative journalist is usually a fairly senior member of staff, and they're able to go to their editors and say, I'm working on something really important. They couldn't tell them what it was, but I need time to be able to do this project, and it's going to be worthwhile. And indeed it was. I think when it launched in April 2016, it made... um, scores of newspapers front pages right Mm. across the globe and had major impact which brings in a benefit to the host newspapers that carry those stories and in australia it was the australian financial review that was involved with the uh, reporting the panama papers you mentioned uh, a a lot of uh, there have been a lot of cases where this sort of collaboration is taking place are there any other examples local or international where uh, people listening uh, would know know the situation yeah, there's been lots of examples. Um, what some reports have documented that since 2013, um, there's been been over a hundred collaborative investigations in 47 different countries. Another one that came from the ICIJ that did the Panama Papers, they did the Paradise Papers the year after, again using a mass data leak to be able to look at other tax havens. And they've recently just done the media implant files, looking at how companies um, are using patients as guinea pigs to test whether medical implants are going to be successful or not with very, very little regulatory oversight. And again, this was an international story. Uh, Locally in Australia, we've had the example of the Banking Royal Commission, which was collaborative work that was done with Adele Ferguson at The Age, also working with the ABC, to be able to really put the spotlight on the Um, errant behaviour of banks and the ways that they were misleading their customers and and treating them very badly, including billing people who had passed away. Mm. All of this was the work of journalism and collaborative investigative journalism, which has had major societal consequences, and in this case it led to a Royal Commission. On the basis of your research, you say that investigative reporting is in better shape than other forms of journalism because of its value to corporate branding and or public interest. What are you getting at here? I think you alluded to this a little bit at the beginning. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that different types of media organisations, let's not be naive, Um, some of them might be doing investigative journalism, not because they really care about holding power to account, but they do care about perform showing advertisers are a certain type of media organization that they're able to do unique stories and one of the difficulties for newspapers in the digital age is that the internet means that they rarely win the breaking news uh, war anymore things can go up online in an instance Um, they can go on radio you don't wait the next day to read it in the newspaper so where they get original reporting is to invest in investigative journalism that way they're able to have stories that they're that other newspapers don't have and the way to do that successfully given that it's expensive form of reporting is to collaborate with others to come up with these um, very significant stories 
But there have been other adaptations too and some of these um, need further scrutiny and that is when I first started looking at investigative journalism back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the number of targets of stories was much broader than it is now. And what I mean by that is journalists can't afford the fishing exercise like they could perhaps in the 1980s when um, journalism was really profitable. Newspapers were making a lot of money and advertising was called the rivers of gold. Then an editor would be very forgiving if a journalist went out, maybe had three months without producing a story, mm. came back and said, I had some false leads, nothing's come of it. Now they can't afford that time, so they go for stories they know they're going to be able to get an end result. And that means that certain areas are not getting the scrutiny that they once were. And that mm. um, is to identify some of those areas. Local, local investigative reporting perhaps is suffering as it's scaling mm. up to mm. a national and international level. And specialised areas like industrial relations that do rely on having those deeper contacts uh, where you're not guaranteed there's a story at the end, mm. there's been less of that reporting. And that's a trend that I've been able to map across the States and the UK as well. You've actually anticipated my very last question, Andrea. I, I was Because <laughs> we're talking about journalism, I was going to end with uh, what I was going to call the bad news, but not really the bad news, a kind of reservation that you had. And, and you've actually addressed a, a couple of those things. But something else I wanted to ask you about was, you talked about the important role of what you call data journalism. And that, what, what is data journalism? And uh, have you got an example of, of, uh, of how that would work in a critical context? Yeah, so data journalism is another really important part of how journalists have adapted to the new environment, not just through collaboration, but also by um, using social science methods to be able to examine information coming in, find patterns. And as we... Um, advance deeper into the digital age, we have data on so much information. A lot of that data is publicly available. So it might be a simple story like going to um, local councils, pulling the data off the website and seeing um, which councils are recouping the most money in traffic fines. It might be a simple story like that and seeing whether um, there's been an overzealous um, policy about uh, recoup about fining people for traffic offences, for parking offences. That's just a really small example that um, journalists could do quite easily. But data journalism has so much more potential than that. And the Panama Papers is another great example where you've got this huge database and custom technologies are being were mm. built in this case so that all the journalists could look at the data at the same time and keep it secure and then develop search methods um, using different technologies because many of these papers they had were PDF files. So they had to develop um, uh, software in order to be able to make the PDFs instantly searchable. And there you're seeing journalists um, examining and parsing data in a way, way to be able to look at patterns that are occurring in stories. Another great example mm -hmm. um, out of the New York Times was looking at um, the police number of times police had caused fatalities. And when they overlaid that with data of the location of those um, police fatalities where police have um, shot at a citizen, they found they were predominantly in black communities. Mm, mm. And then drilling down further into that data, we're able to see that um, black communities were 
well and truly overrepresented, and that led to an inquiry in in New York. So, and and that was a journalist again looking for patents within data data that um, can be freely available. It sounds like uh, journalism has to take on board a whole bunch of new skill sets as well, and if if this is the way things are going to be going. That's right. And from what I've seen um, interviewing journalists from the New York Times and from the Washington Post and ProPublica and The Guardian and all different parts of the world, Australia's a little bit behind in some of its data journalism skills, but I think that's changing. For example, Google has recently partnered up with the Walkley Foundation, which runs um, the most prestigious journalism awards in Australia and has given a commitment that it will train journalists in data gathering and um, data analytical skills. And so having that funding support and um, commitment to training journalists up is a good first step. And I work at a university in a journalism school. Um, We've got six of them in Melbourne. They're also putting an emphasis now on um, being able to use these social science methods for journalism to be able to identify patterns and ultimately to identify where wrongdoings occurring in society. Very interesting. And it's been really interesting talking to you today, Andrea, and all the best with your research and your book coming out. And I want to thank you very much for being on Communication Mixdown. Thank you very much for your interest. You are listening there to Andrea Carson, and she's an associate professor in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University. And her book is entitled Investigative Journalism, Democracy and the Digital Age, and it's published by Routledge. And we'll put all the details of that book on our website, the Communication Mixdown website, and uh, we will be podcasting this show as well. Let's go out with Joe Romerosa, Romersa, and it's a track called Fake News, very appropriate.
3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference.